Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Today's scripture reading is from the third chapter of Paul's first letter to Timothy, beginning at the 14th verse. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to New King Church on this beautiful Sunday morning. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at New King. And one of the great things about this church is you get to hear from several of us. And and it's just great to hear different voices, different thoughts from different generations. Guess what generation I'm in? Yours. Yes, thank you, Amy. Your generation. I think I'm a little older than you. That's all right. Um, so we're in uh, 1 Timothy. If you're, if you're visiting here today, you're here for the first time, we preach through whole books of the Bible. We think there's great value in that. For example, Timothy, it was written as a letter, a whole letter to be read as a letter. And so we preach through whole books. And uh, we're now in chapter 3. And if you've been here, for this series in 1 Timothy, you'll know that I've preached already three times in this book. This is my fourth. And all three times, I referred to these verses. I started out all three times talking about them uh, and, and, and starting my sermon based upon them. And you're probably thinking today, all right, what more could this guy say? about these verses? Guess what? A lot. (laughs) I am so passionate about these verses. And what I want to do is I want to lead us through this short passage, show you what it means in an expositional fashion, and then I'm going to have a couple of, of comments about it, some conclusions to draw from. And the first one, I'm going to tell you why I'm so excited about these verses, why I'm so passionate. So that's the plan. Let's open in prayer. Uh, Father God, uh, we thank you that we can come this morning and worship your son, Jesus that we can gather around his name and glorify him. As we go through this little passage, Father, this morning, I pray that you would help me to speak clearly and most of all to glorify your son, Jesus. 
Help all of us to glorify him this morning as we hear from your word, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope to come to you soon, Paul says. He had this desire to come. He wanted to see them. But he says, I may delay. I might not make it there. I'm going to be a little later than I thought. And if I am, I have some words for you. I want you to know how to behave in church. What does that mean? Now, when I was a little fellow, probably four, it's one of my earliest memories. Uh, I grew up in Bar Harbor, Maine, and if you go to Bar Harbor, there's a huge church downtown, the Episcopal Church, big stone building. That's where we went to church. And I remember clearly this one Sunday being in church, and uh, in that church, we had these uh, kneelers to pray on. So you stood and you sung, you sat down and you listened, but you kneeled on a kneeler. You prayed. You actually kneeled on your knees. And underneath the pew in front of you were all these little velvet kneelers. Well, I was kind of down on the floor, and there was a kid in front of me. His name was Tommy, and his dad was the pastor of the church. We called him Father. And so I got down on the floor, and I'd push the kneeler to Tommy, and he'd push it back. Well, my mother got wind of it pretty quickly. She had this third eye coming down from her neck. You know how mothers can see in all directions? She saw it. What do you suppose happened? Up I went, marched out. You know what marching looks like when you're a little kid, when your mother marches you? Your feet really don't even touch the ground. Out the door I went, you're not going to behave like that in church, she said. And she took me across the street to my Uncle Steve's house. My Uncle Steve was outside, and he was raking leaves, and he had a little burn pile going. He was burning the leaves, and he was smoking a pipe. And she brought him down, marched me across the street. Down I went, will you take care of him? He couldn't behave in church. And my Uncle Steve smiled. That day, my Uncle Steve became my favorite uncle. (laughs) And I don't know why, but to this day, I love the smell of a pipe because he was smoking a pipe, and I burned things. I don't know what the connection is. What Paul is talking about is not just how we behave and conduct ourselves when we're sitting here on Sunday morning, is it? It's deeper than that. There's more to it than that. It has application for our whole lives in how we conduct ourselves everywhere. It's not just about behaving in church. You with me on that? So, so Paul describes the church in three ways. In verse 15, he says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And I just want to kind of break this all down for us. The first word that we see, it says in our English translations, ought to behave. That's really one word in the Greek, and I can't pronounce it for you this morning, so I won't even bother to butcher it. 
It means that your conduct is based upon your knowledge. You in your life, you act out what you know and believe. Your conduct is based based upon what you know and believe, and you act accordingly. And that's the word Paul is using here. And if you remember some of the other um, sermons in this series in 1 Timothy, talked about uh, false teachers, talked about good doctrine, healthy doctrine, what you believe, the doctrine that you believe, your understanding is crucial and vital because it dictates how you behave. So Paul uses this technical word, ought to behave, for conduct based upon knowledge. What we know. And then these three descriptors, house of God, church of the living God, and a pillar and buttress of the truth. Three things. We are the household of God, the family of God. That's what Paul is trying to convey here. And in a household, there's certain conduct that's appropriate and certain conduct that's not. Some families, for example, make a big deal about eating dinner together. You, we, we're going to eat dinner. T- no, we're not going to be in front of the TV. We're going we're to eat dinner together. And you're going to get up in the morning and you've got chores to do. Before we have breakfast, you've got to feed the cat and walk the dog and all those kind of things if you're a kid. We live in a farming community, and the last church I pastored, there'd be a whole bunch of farmers that would come in. And the interesting thing about them is they'd been up since 4 a.m. And as soon as I would preach, three of them would just clunk over like this because it was a warm building, and they were tired, and they'd been up, and they just swallowed down some breakfast, and they barely got here, and out they went. I learned that that was okay. They needed their sleep. Any farmers here? Okay, nobody has an excuse then. Nobody has an excuse. There's certain conduct. If you're a farmer, I went to school with farmer's kids, and oh my word, they were up at four. They were out on tractors. They were slopping the pigs and milking the cows and doing all this stuff. There was conduct that was expected in their household. There was conduct expected in the household. And how does it term it? The church of the living God. This should evoke in you the supreme ruler of the universe to whom we will stand before and give account. It's like when my wife would say, wait till your father gets home, right? We stand before God. It is the church of the living God. He is vitally interested in everything that goes on in the church. He is invested in it. Praise God, yeah? He is invested in the church, into you and I. We are his family, but he is the living God. And he is in charge, and he is supreme. It is the church, the assembly, the grouping, the gathering, the household of God. And then third, 
a pillar and a buttress of the truth. What does that mean? Well, this starts to evoke this, this metaphor of a building. And what does a pillar do? It holds something up. It's a structural element that holds up the roof and the upper stories of the building. A buttress, we, uh, scholars don't really know how to translate this particular word. It's a foundational element that provide, provides great strength to the building. And so Paul puts these two together and says, the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. It has a load-bearing role in the world. It has a foundational role in the world. For what? The truth. The truth. The business of the church is the truth. It's what we're based on. It's what the church is characterized by. It's what we are to uphold and support in this world. The truth. What truth? What truth? (laughs) Verse 16. The great mystery. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Now, I want to talk about this word mystery for a minute. It, it's based upon a Greek word, uh, mysterion. And what all Bible translations do is instead of really translating it from one language to another, it, they, they transliterate it. They take the Greek letters and they turn them into an English word. And we get confused by that. We don't know what it means. When we hear the word mystery, we think of something strange, something mystical, something beyond our capability to understand. But it doesn't mean that at all. It's something like a secret, and in this case, a secret that has been revealed. I've got something in my pocket. What is it? Huh? The one ring. ring. Yes, to rule them all. I've got something. That would have been great. I should have brought the one. I have it at home. (laughs) I've got something in my pocket. What is it? Is it mysterious? It's just something that's in there, and you don't. You don't know what it is, but I do. But if you know me, if you know me, if you've been around me for a while, I bring this same thing to church every Sunday. And you might kind of see, I guess you can't really see the outline of it, but you might see it peeking up. What is it? Sunglasses, yeah. Aren't I the coolest person that ever lived, (laughs) right? Nothing mysterious about it. It's something that was in there. You didn't know what it was, but you kind of had a clue what it was. You kind of had an inkling. It was kind of peeking out. But it's hidden. But now reveal. Now everybody knows. That's what this word mystery means. It's something that was hidden in past ages, 
But it was there all along. And if you know God, if you know who he is, you can see it there peeking out. You know what it is. And then when it's revealed, you say, of course. I see him put those on and off a hundred times on Sunday morning. He goes out, he puts on his sunglasses. It's no mystery at all. It's not mysterious. It's something that was hidden and secret, but peeking out and now revealed. Great is the mystery of godliness. So what does godliness mean? That's a key term in 1 Timothy. It's used seven times. And so if we see a term used that many times, we better learn and understand what it means. It's a theme of the letter, a key word. The problem is, just like mystery, we get that word wrong too. Bible teacher Phil Jensen says that we add an extra O to it. We turn it from godliness to goodliness. And we think that our faith and our Christianity and the mystery of the ages is all about us being good so that God will accept us. And if you really think about it, if Paul had written this letter, if that's what it meant, he would have said, well, the key to behaving in the house of God is to behave. Well, okay, but how helpful is that? The key to behavior is to behave. What good is that? It has to mean something else. It's not goodly. It's godly. And godly means our devotion to God. Our devotion to God. It's a relational term, how we relate to God. It's all about our relationalness to him and our devotedness to him. Paul says that if we're devoted to God, if we know him and love him, then proper conduct will organically result. The more you're devoted to God, the better you'll behave. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Yeah? Same philosophy, same idea. Our devotion, our love for God, our re- as the relationship deepens, as our understanding deepens, it becomes easier and easier for proper conduct. Again, it happens organically from the inside. And isn't that the basis of the new covenant through the blood of Jesus that the Holy Spirit will indwell us? Yeah? It comes from the inside. Not a bunch of rules written up on the refrigerator. Okay, in the morning when you get up, you brush your teeth, you feed the dog, you water the cat, whatever. Whatever. Don't try that at home. It's not a bunch of rules and regulations. It's based upon a relationship. Godliness is our devotion to God. The more we're devoted to him, the better we'll act. It'll happen automatically. That's what he's trying to say. It's our response to who God is. And what he's done. And what is the mystery 
of godliness? What is now revealed to us that we are to, uh, to base our devotion to God on? Six things. If you look in your Bibles, you'll see that the, that the end of verse 16 is set off by itself. Some scholars say it was, it was a confessional that was repeated again and again and again. Paul says, great is the confession. We say this. We believe it. It's our core. It's our fiber. It's who we are. It's our understanding. It's our basis for living. Some people say it was a poem. Some scholars say it was a hymn. And it was to be sung. Six things. You want to know what the mystery of godliness is? It's Jesus. <laughs> it's our Savior. But what about him was hidden? What about him was hidden and secret and now revealed? Six things. He was manifest in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. Lucius, where are you? Could you oh, he's out back. Could you sing a, make it, write a song for that? I'm sure there is one. So I want to just take a moment and go down through each one of these. Manifested in the flesh. This is God's self-disclosure in the world. The word manifest means to make visible of what has been hidden and unknown. You bring it out and you display it for all to see. And the first thing is he was manifest in the flesh. Christianity is not based upon an idea or a concept or a philosophy or a feeling. It's based upon a, a historical event in which God came in the flesh to this world. We are the visited planet. God has come to this earth. Who can imagine that God in the person, the second person of the Trinity, was made flesh. John 1 says, he was made flesh and he dwelt. The word dwelt means tabernacled. He lived among us. He made his home among us. That God would come down from glory. Whoever would have thought that Jesus would come. It's an event a historical event with many witnesses, many attestations, he came. Why did Jesus come? Well, we say he came to, to, to do the Father's will. Well, yeah, of course he did. Well, he came to suffer for sins. Well, yes, he did. Well, he, he came because he loved us and he gave himself for us. Well, well, yes, he did. Why did Jesus say he came? Destroy the works of the devil? John 18, 27. Jesus says, For this purpose I was born. 
For this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. The truth. Do you see the connection? Jesus came into the world to do all those other things, but to bear witness. This is what he was born for. This is what you and I are born again for. This is the family of God. We are to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth, the truth of the gospel. Secondly, he was vindicated by the Spirit, vindicated. We struggle with that word a little bit, but what it really means is to be declared righteous and just. It's a technical term, a law term. Uh, Vindicated means you are publicly declared just and righteous. So, So Paul says he was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit had some work to do here, and we get a clue what it is. It's to vindicate Jesus. In Romans 1.4, it says this. He, Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Holy Spirit by his resurrection. So we get a clue that the work of the Spirit was showing who Jesus was in power and glory by his resurrection. That was the work of the Spirit. That's the vindication. In other words, when Jesus did the work, and remember, the work is finished. When he bore our sins, when he was obedient unto his Father, when he was obedient unto death, and when he died, and when he went into the grave, He was raised in power. The work is accepted. The work is finished. And the Spirit declares it by his resurrection. The vindication of the Spirit. Now the Spirit, work of the Spirit is really interesting. Just a little side note here. In John 15, in verse 26, Jesus says, When this helper comes, remember 14, Jesus says, I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send somebody else to come alongside you to help you. The Holy Spirit, John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, the spirit of truth. Huh, isn't that interesting? The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will witness about me. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit is the one that vindicated Jesus. The work of the Spirit in our lives is to be a witness to us of who Jesus is and what he did. And it's centered around truth. He is the Spirit of truth. Jesus came for the truth. We are a pillar and buttress of the truth. Seen by angels. Interesting one. Seen by angels. Christianity is based on a series of historical events. Yes. But it has ramifications in the spiritual world 
as well. It's almost like there's an intersection of the two. The natural world and the spiritual world come together. 1 Peter 1 tells us that in untold, for untold ages, the angels longed to look into the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And the word longed, it's it's like the angels are standing on the brink, on the edge, bowing down, leaning down, trying to understand what Jesus has done. They long to know the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So, he was seen by angels. What happened is his resurrection. Who was the very first witness? There's a guy, an angel, sitting on a rock, sitting on the stone. Hey, uh, he's not here. <laughs> the first witness was an angel. And they long to look into these things. Okay, believed on, or proclaimed among the nations. The next phrase he was proclaimed among the nations. The gospel goes forth to the uttermost parts of the world. From Judea and Jerusalem and Samaria out everywhere. The gospel goes out and it goes out to everyone. This is a big part of the mystery. When Paul uses that term mystery, he uses it a number of times in the New Testament. And for him, this idea of mystery was just amazing to him. If you look in the book of Ephesians, half of chapter 2 and nearly all of chapter 3 is about what this mystery is. It's the same mystery. Let me read a little portion from Ephesians 3. Verse 4, Paul says, or verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations and has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So it was hidden, it's now revealed. Mystery. What is it? Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Mystery, mystery, mystery. Revealed, revealed, revealed. What is it? That it's for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. It goes out to the ends of the earth without exception. Every people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It goes out to everyone. 
That was the mystery that was hidden, now revealed. And then the next phrase, what happened then? It was proclaimed, it was believed on in the world. No man, no other man in history have so many people put their faith in, believed and trusted, than this man. It was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. When people hear the gospel message, the Holy Spirit works on them and changes them, and they believe it, and their lives are transformed. The word goes out, preached on in the nations, and people respond, and they believe. They believe. And finally, taken up in glory. Hebrews 2.9 says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Jesus is glorified. He's been taken up into glory. By the eye of faith, you and I see him sitting at God's right hand. He is glorified. This man, this man came to earth. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, declared righteous by his resurrection. He was seen by angels who have longed for millennia to look into these things and witness to. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed in the world and he was taken up into glory. This, my friends, is the mystery, something hidden now revealed, of godliness. Again, godliness, what we base our devotion to God on. What compels us, what thrills us, what warms our heart is Jesus and who he was and what he did. And when we get that right, our conduct, good conduct for the church results. Now, some final thoughts. Why, why am I so excited about this passage? Why every time I preach do I talk about it? Why am I so passionate? Well, I'm going to do something. Ben's not here today. And I actually sat with his family. If you're new here and you saw me sitting with this lovely family, they're not my family. I just sat there. They're Ben's family. Uh, I kind of stole the family from him this morning. I'm going to steal a verse from one of his upcoming sermons because I have to. I can't stand it. 
It's driving me crazy. He's going to preach on it. I can't, and it makes me a little mad. So I'm going to just get in a little bit this morning. Over in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, there's a whole section from 6 to 16 which talks about what a pastor does. It's his job description. Remember a few weeks ago, we were in chapter 2, it gave the qualifications for a pastor, for a shepherd, for an elder. Chapter 4 gives the job description. And down a little bit in verse 14, or 13, um, 4.13, Paul says to Timothy, until I come, remember he was going to be delayed, right? Remember that? He can't make it. I'll write this letter to you. Until I come, He says this, devote yourself, is that word devotion again, to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, exhortation, to teaching. Don't neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now here's the verse, verse 15. Paul says, practice these things. Immerse yourselves in these things so that, so that all may see your progress. Immerse yourself. When we decided a few months ago to do 1 Timothy, God gave me a heart of study to immerse myself in 1 Timothy in a way that I never have before. This is not my first go-around. I've taught through 1 Timothy a bunch of times. But God opened my eyes to 1 Timothy, and I was able to immerse myself in it. I felt like I was saturated. Every day I would read it, and the verses that kept coming to me were 14 through 16, the ones I'm preaching on today, where every day I would think about those verses. Every day I would read through 1 Timothy and see what the conduct of the church of the living God should be. Lucius, again this morning, we were praying before the service. He says, Eric, I cannot believe how excited you are about preaching this. I don't want Ben to preach. I want to do all of them. Because God has immersed me in this book. So I've been immersed in it in a new way. And then it says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Listen, we as pastors, elders, Shepherds, we have not arrived. I don't know if you know that or not. We haven't gotten to the gold standard. We are a work in progress. We are learning. We are knowing more. We are living out more of the gospel. And it's a good thing for you to know it and to see it, so that all may see your progress. God has done a work in my heart through 1 Timothy that I can't even imagine. Every portion of it, 
I have learned, I have grown. Let me give you one example. We had this big sermon about, about in chapter 2 about elders, and, and it talked about uh, male and female roles and all that, and we got all nerved up a little bit, but we got through it all. Listen, it's hard. I want to tell you, when you come to a hard scripture that you don't understand, rejoice. Don't skip over it. Dig into it because God is going to change you. Why do we read the scripture? So we can change. It's like a mirror. If we think we've arrived, we're idiots. We're foolish. I come to that verse and it's like, oh, I don't even know what to say. It's so hard. And then I started digging. And for the first time in my life, I feel like, this is going to seem weird for you to to hear because it's a big term, I feel like I have an integrated theology of an understanding of men and women's roles in the church like never before. I studied 1 Corinthians 11. And what does 1 Corinthians 11 say? It has all this weird stuff about head coverings and headships and all that. We don't know what that means. But it says to the women, when you pray or prophesy, that's in church. How do I understand that? And then verse uh, chapter 14, where it talks about prophecy, and it says women keep silent. How do I understand that? And then Galatians, it says, oh, in, in Christ, there's neither male nor female, and it goes on. How do I understand that? How do I understand Timothy? God has given me an understanding, and boy, have I gotten some things wrong. We have not valued the women in this church enough. We have made some mistakes, and I am sorry for that. I am progressing in my faith. Be patient with me. See my progress. That's why I'm so excited about 1 Timothy, because I see that God is working in my life, and you should see it too. But man, I have not arrived yet. A couple other things before we close. Your behavior, your conduct in the church, the household of the living God, is determined by your understanding of the mystery of the gospel. Ben last week used the term intoxicated. We want to be intoxicated by the gospel so that it controls our lives and our conduct. In a day of immense cultural pressure, we need to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. If we bend to the pressures of the world and compromise the truth of the gospel, we will no longer be the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. It matters immensely. And we live in a world where it's becoming more and more difficult. Immerse yourself in the gospel. 
Finally, I just want to share one quick thing with you at the end. I was looking at these six descriptions in this little song, this little hymn, and I just, I read all the commentaries I had, which is about six of them on 1 Timothy, and everybody had a different view about how the structure of this went. Some people said, well, it's, it really happens kind of chronologically. He was manifest in the flesh. He was raised from the dead, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. Then they get to the last phrase, um, taken up into glory, and they have a little problem with that. It's not quite all chronological. Others say it's kind of an alternating kind of a structure, right? He was manifest in the flesh, so the, so the physical world. He was vindicated by the spirit. That's the spiritual world. He was seen by angels. That's the spiritual world. He was proclaimed among the nations. That's the physical world. Back and forth, back and forth. And others had a whole bunch of ideas about how the structure. And, you know, when we look at music, when we look at songs, when we look at things, there's a structure and an order to them. And I was praying that the Lord would show me what the order was. And then it hit me. It's a call and response. If you know music, there's a, there's a song type called a call and a response. Here's the call. He was manifested in the flesh. And the rest is the response. He was vindicated by the Spirit. The Spirit responded and raised him from the dead. The angels witnessed the preachers proclaimed. The hearers believed. And God took him up into glory. This song requires a response from you. Will you respond to the gospel? If you haven't put your trust in Jesus, will you believe him? If you're not going on, and your life is a little bit of a mess, and your conduct is, will you respond to the gospel? Will you embrace Jesus? Will you throw your arms around him and feel his love and forgiveness upon you? Then the other things, I don't want to make light of them, but they tend to work themselves out. It's about our response. And I want to close with a last song. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 says, They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering by the myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory. And blessing, do you see? Everything under heaven and earth responds to Jesus. And I heard every creature, 
on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this portion. We thank you that we see the mystery of godliness. It is revealed before us. It is a song of praise to Jesus that he came and suffered and died on this, in this world so that we might become a kingdom and priests and a church and a household. Oh, Lord Jesus, we fall down and we worship you in response. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.